welcome to my new podcast called The Crime Cat. My name is Lisa, and I basically decided to start my own true crime podcast because I've been obsessed with true crime for years. I always watched the ID network, always would go into deep dives on my own on individual cases, and in the last year or two, started listening to true crime podcasts and found myself also going into deep dives on those cases. And I decided, why would I not start my own true crime podcast? I know there's a lot out there, but it's just a a passion of mine, an obsession, I guess you can say. I just love everything about true crime. I'm fascinated by it. Um, And that's it. And that's why I decided to start this podcast. So welcome to episode one. And I got this idea from my brother-in-law to do this case. So I'm going to be covering today the story of Kendall Francois. So let's get into it. Kendall Francois was born on July 26, 1971 in Poughkeepsie, New York, to Paulette Francois and McKinley Francois. He was the second of four siblings, Raquel, Aubrey, and Kirsten. On January 20th, 1975, his parents bought their home in Poughkeepsie, New York at 99 Fulton Avenue. Poughkeepsie is located in the Hudson Valley in Dutchess County, New York, which is upstate, about 90 miles north of New York City. It was noted in numerous sources that the house was worn looking with a shabby exterior compared to other homes on the block that were well kept. It was located two blocks away from an area in Poughkeepsie that was lined with fast food restaurants and known to have prostitutes working in those areas, despite being really close to Vassar College. His mother worked as a vocational counselor for the mentally ill at the Hudson River Psychiatric Hospital. His father worked at a factory. They were very much the middle, lower to middle class family. Now, Kendall was made fun of by other kids in school due to his large stature and weight, and the fact that he was quiet and kept mostly to himself. He also had really bad body odor. By age 14, just to give you an example of his size and stature, he was already six foot four and 250 pounds. In other articles that I had read, they had placed him over 300 pounds. He would later be known as Kendall Stinky Francois. He did go as far as to graduate high school with his diploma, Arlington High School, although some reports do note he sporadically attended school, and it was noted that he was of barely average intelligence. At age 18, in 1989, Kendall graduates from high school, and in 1990, at age 19, he joins the Army. He does his basic training at Fort Sill in Oklahoma before being sent to Honolulu, Hawaii. In 1994, at age 23, he is discharged from the Army, and he returns home to live with his family in the same home that he grew up in. He decides to take classes at a community college in Dutchess County, and then he begins to work as a janitor in his former middle school, Arlington Middle School. Things are uneventful. He is presumably doing well, as a year later, at age 24, he does get a promotion to become a hall and detention monitor. Okay, now, whenever I discuss sensitive information, I am going to put it out there. Um, This is definitely a trigger warning, a lot of sensitive content to follow. 
We're going to get into his crimes now. On October 24th, 1996, he picks up a prostitute named Wendy Myers after dropping his mother off at work. She was a 30-year-old prostitute who was white. She had a small build and short brown hair with hazel eyes. They agreed to have sex, set a price, and he drove them back to his parents' house. They begin to have sex until Kendall becomes angry, thinking that Myers had ripped him off. It was noted that she did take his cash twice but ran away from him before presumably agreeing to a price and getting in his vehicle. Now there are two versions to what happens next. The first version is he begins to strangle her until she dies. The second version of the story is that he chokes her until she becomes unconscious but is still alive. Then he runs a bath and holds her face down in the bathtub until she dies that way and he drowns her. Then he allegedly washes her body and wraps her up in garbage bags, then brings her into the attic and leaves her there. Two days later, Wendy's boyfriend contacts the police to to report her as a missing person. He was the last person to see her in an apartment that was located across the river from Poughkeepsie. On November 29, 1996, he picked up 28-year-old Gina Barone. She was also a white female with a small build and brown hair. According to Gina's mother, she had a long history of drug use starting at age 12 and got into prostitution at an early age. She had a fight with her boyfriend while driving around with him in his car when she jumps out of his car and begins to walk away. She then meets Kendall and they negotiate sex for money, which they do in his parents' garage. There are also conflicting reports of this, exactly what happened, But from what I can gather, he had sex with her in his car between the hours of 2 and 3 a.m. And she started to complain that he was too heavy and that the whole thing was just taking too long. He all of a sudden becomes angry and again, feels like he's been ripped off, which we're going to see is a common theme here and an apparent trigger for him. He chokes her until she dies and leaves her body in the trunk of his car and leaves her overnight in the family's garage. The next day, he puts her into a trash bag and under a mattress where she would remain for the next three months, before then being transferred to the attic. On December 9th, 1996, her mother does report her missing. Now at this time, as you can imagine, things are beginning to become a little smelly in the family home. Again, as I noted earlier, the exterior of the home was falling apart, noted to be shabby, and not really looking the same as the other well-kept-up houses on the block. But it turns out the inside of the house was not much better at all. It was noted that the interior was littered with dirty clothing, insects, and syringes lying around, and just overall noted as a dirty, smelly household. However, the neighbors at this time were beginning to complain of more odors. The family was also starting to comment on the strange smells because remember, his whole family was living in the house with Kendall as he was starting to commit these murders and place these bodies in the attic of the house. Kendall had told them that dead raccoons were inside the walls and that he was working to get rid of them, and that's where all the odor and the smells were coming from. On November 31st, 1996, he picks up prostitute Catherine Marsh, who is 31 years old. 
Again, she had the same build as the other victims, which is also, we'll see, as his common victim profile. Small frame, she was white with brown hair and blue eyes. However, on some accounts, she was noted to be pregnant. They negotiate a price, and he brings her back to his house. Again, they have sex, and he chokes her to death, washes her body, and places her in the attic. It wouldn't be until March of 1997, a few months later, that her her mother does report her missing. Kathleen Hurley, who was 47 years old, is last seen alive walking down Main Street in Poughkeepsie on January 12th, 1997. She is older than the other victims, but again has the same build, small, framed, white, and with brown hair. She, however, had never been known or arrested for prostitution. Her family does report her missing on January 15th, 1997, just three days later. At this time, police are starting to suspect a serial killer is responsible for the missing women. However, there is no bodies to be found, so these are all just missing person cases. Lieutenant Bill Seagrest and Detective Skip Minane are assigned to the case. They start speaking with area prostitutes, and one name keeps surfacing over and over again, Kendall Francois. The prostitutes report that Kendall was rough and liked to choke them during sex. In February of 1997, Mary Healy Giacone, who is 29, disappears. Again, she has the same type of body, same type of frame. She is reported missing by her father on November 13th, 1997, so quite a few months later. I'm assuming her and her father had some sort of falling out. She was um, living away for some time, and her father was actually trying to find her and contact her to let her know that her mother had passed away. In September of 1997, Michelle Eason, who was 27 years old, disappears. She is the only victim of color. She is an African-American prostitute, but with the same small body type and frame as the other victims. Debbie Anan, a prostitute and a drug addict, meets Kendall in November of 1997. The two negotiate sex for money, and he takes her back to his home, where he attempts to strangle her. Debbie had barely escaped her encounter with Francois and went to the police where she gave them his name and his street address. Debbie was known to the police and would help assist them in undercover drug operations in the area. However, for whatever reason, they didn't seem to take her report seriously, and they basically ignored her, despite her somehow breaking away from him during sex and escaping. On December 14, 1997, an article is published in the Poughkeepsie Journal titled, quote, Is There a Killer on the Loose? At this point in time, police only know there are multiple missing women, all with the same features and known for either prostitution or drug addictions, and they have little else to go on. There are still no bodies or crime scene evidence. Francois is being suspected at this point after interviews with all the prostitutes, and he is placed under periodic surveillance and observation by the police. Lieutenant Segrist follows Kendall as he drops his mother off to work and stops him to ask if he would come down to the station for questioning, to which he agrees. He answers all of their questions, calmly, and even passes a lie detector test. He even allows Detective Menane to come into his home, only allowing him to come into his bedroom to inspect it. Now, Detective Menane noted that the home smelled awful and was a mess. 
He reported on the soil clothing, piles of garbage, dead insects, such as cockroaches, rotting food. He did not realize at that time he was also smelling decomposition from all the bodies. On January 18, 1998, Francois is out cruising the street for prostitutes when he spots Laura Gallagher. She gets in his car, they negotiate a price for sex, and he takes her back to his house. During sex, he begins to strangle her until she passes out. However, she does regain consciousness and begins fighting back and manages to get out from under him. She demands to be taken back to the street where she was picked up. He calms down and agrees to take her. After she is dropped off, she begins to talk about her experience with another prostitute who does report the incident to the police. Laura is brought in for questioning, where she recounts the attack and gives her statement. However, she would not sign a deposition until February 26th, a month later. Kendall is immediately arrested. His trial begins a few months later in May of 1998. He pleads guilty, and due to that plea, is sentenced to 15 days. However, he is released after seven and let back out onto the streets just to commit more crimes. His release date was May 25, 1998. Less than four weeks after being released from prison, he strikes again. His next victim is different than his past ones. He sets his sights on 51-year-old, soon-to-be grandmother, Sandra Jean French. She was reported to have struggled with drug use for many years. On June 12, 1998, Kendall picks her up and they begin to have sex at his house where he again strangles her and kills her. Her body was also washed and initially placed into the attic. However, at this point, it's becoming really crowded up there, so he has to figure out other plans. He moves her into the basement crawl space where he digs a shallow grave and places her body there. His next strike is on August 12, 1998, where he picks up prostitute Audrey Puglisi, who was 34 years old. Kendall was noted to be one of her regular customers, so she quickly negotiated a price with him and gets into his car. He brings her down into the basement for sex, where once again, he becomes very angry during sex and begins punching her in the face. She starts to fight back, manages to struggle free, and runs away. However, she did not get very far because Kendall would grab her by her hair and begin punching her in the face and head. While she was on the floor, he began stomping on her face, her ribs, and her stomach. He then begins to strangle her. He then brings her into the basement crawl space and places her on top of Sandra's body. On August 25th, he would commit his final crime. It was with 25-year-old Katina Newmaster, who was another one of his regulars. She had also worked as a police informant in the past. She got into his car and was killed in the garage of his home and also placed into the crawl space. On September 1st, 1998, he picks up Christine Sala. He begins his usual thing of sex and assaulting her. However, she was also able to free herself. Somehow, she convinces him to drive her to a local gas station to get some cigarettes. She ran inside and would remain in there, telling her story to the clerks. Kendall's waiting for her, and he sees police starting to form a barricade down the street, and he drives away. Meanwhile, a block or so away, Detective Menane 
and Detective Bob McCready were preparing to hand out flyers in their unmarked police vehicle, asking the public for help in the disappearance of Katina Newmaster. The officers then happened to pull into the same gas station that Kendall was just at, and a man approached the car, telling them a woman, who was now walking away, was just assaulted. They quickly found her and brought her into the station for questioning. She filed a complaint against Kendall. That same afternoon, the police went to Kendall's home and began to speak with him about the most recent attack. He agreed to head into the station for questioning, and over the next few hours, he began his long confession. He ended up looking through piles of photos, to which he placed one p- pile of four photos, saying, quote, I killed them. Another pile containing three photos, he stated, quote, I'm not sure about those. He then at some point gave them a map of his home, showing exactly where he had hidden all the bodies. Many times throughout this long confession, he waived his right to a lawyer. He was charged with a single count of murder in the death of Katina Newmaster. A search warrant was then signed by a judge, and on September 3rd, at 1 o'clock in the morning, police, detectives, EMS, and crime scene processors descended and entered his home. His family was home at the time, of course. They were asked to leave so that they can conduct the search properly, and they were presumably shocked. Again, I know this whole episode has been a trigger warning, but this is also um, a sensitive content warning. This is discussing the evidence found in the home, and it's pretty gruesome. So, they found in the basement black plastic bags. One of the bags contained a knee joint that could be seen with the skin and tendons starting to decompose. A second bag seemed to contain all sorts of bones. Then, in the attic, in the corner, they found a clear plastic bag containing a skeleton of at least one person, And during the next three days, eight bodies would be removed from the home, all in varying stages of decomposition, with some even at the beginning stages of of dismemberment. Special x-ray type devices were used to detect bones and other body parts that were hidden in the walls or buried. It was reported later that a cop that was clearing bodies out of the attic ruined two pairs of boots walking through decayed flesh. There were also some skulls of the victims dumped into a kiddie pool that was also kept in the attic. Two days after his arrest, Kendall was indicted for the murder of Katina Newmaster. On September 9th, he appeared in court with a not guilty plea. A month later, on October 13th, he was then charged with eight counts of first-degree murder, eight counts of second-degree murder, and attempted assault. He was noted to say, quote, killing seemed easier than getting into a relationship, end quote. He was also noted to giggle in the courtroom when the victim's families read their impact statements. Now, under New York state law, the death penalty can be sought with first-degree murder per the DA. It may only be imposed by the jury, which has heard the case. Kendall's attorney chose to plead guilty on December 23rd before the DA could even make that decision, and thereby avoiding trial by jury. However, on February 11th, 1999, the court ruled that the guilty plea could not be accepted. It was then learned that Francois contracted HIV from one of his victims, and it was 
noted that it was his first victim that he contracted HIV from, and his defense decided to use that to the Court of Appeals, which upheld the guilty plea in March of 2000. On August 11, 2000, he was sentenced to life in prison. He was given eight consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole, plus 25 years for the sexual assault on Christine Sala. He was to serve his time in the Attica Correctional Facility. At the time of the ruling, he said, quote, I could have kept going. It would have gone on and gone on, and they never would have found a thing, end quote. This whole time, which was... I, I mean, really shocking to me. I couldn't even wrap my head around it. But his family stated they never knew or suspected him. They were shocked about what was found in their own home. They had no knowledge of anything. And I just can't imagine how bad the house had a smell prior to the bodies, to eight bodies being kept there and decomposing for months. I I just can't wrap my head around it. But his family states they just never knew anything. Now, on September 14th, 2014, at the age of 43, after only serving 16 years, Kendall died in prison. His cause of death was never released by the medical examiner, although it was rumored that he had cancer, and it was made known that he did not die from complications of HIV. It should be noted that Michelle Eason, the only African-American victim that did not fit his profile, has never been found. She remains a missing person to this day. And that is the story of Kendall Francois, the Poughkeepsie killer. And my brother-in-law, when he suggested this story to me, um, mentioned a movie called The Poughkeepsie Tapes, which I had heard of before. But despite being such a true crime fan, I am not into horror movies. (laughs) I rather watch true horror and real and true crime, but I don't like scary movies. I'll get nightmares forever. And the Poughkeepsie tapes, I looked into it and it's actually a movie that was um, based loosely on the killings of, of Kendall, which it was known that Kendall never recorded any of his victims' deaths. Um, the Poughkeepsie tapes movie also drew inspiration from Ted Bundy. And I just want to point out, um, it's going to be in the show notes where I got all my source materials from, but I didn't have a chance to read this book, but I really want to. It's called The Spider and the Fly by Claudia Rowe. And I did get some information from there. And it was based on a, a journalist that had encounters with Kendall for four years, first by writing and then actually meeting him in person. And it, I got, I read a bunch of excerpts and I actually do want to read the book. So that is just one of the source materials that I use that will be included in the show notes. And that is the story. And that is going to wrap up my first episode. I don't know who is listening in the great void, but thank you for listening. And because my podcast is called The Crime Cat, I figured I would end each podcast on a lighter note, a palate cleanser, if you will. And I am a crazy cat lady. I have two cats. I absolutely love them. I'm a I love everything about cats. And I figured I would end each episode on a cat fact. So today's cat fact is that cats have an extra organ that allow them to taste scents on the air. 
which is why sometimes you'll notice that a cat will stare at you with its mouth gaping open and making this weird face. It's because they have receptors at the roof of their mouth that helps them to smell. The first time that my cat ever did this to me years ago, I did not know what was wrong with him, and I learned that many years ago, and I just think that's an interesting fact. So I'm going to end on that, on that note, and I'm going to hope to put out a new episode every week, um, on Tuesdays. So I hope who's ever listening, stay tuned. I'm going to be developing an Instagram page, um, the crime cat. You can find me on my website, which is the crime cat podcast You can send me a Gmail at the crime cat podcast at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. Bye.